Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We would love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit our website at www.lifechurchofrichmond.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. Big hand, can we do it? Great job. All right, all right. Didn't they do awesome today? Amen, amen, amen. Why don't you turn around and shake somebody's hand next to you? Tell them it's good to see them in church. I'm going to jump right in this morning, welcome to Family Worship Sunday, and also the kickoff of a brand new sermon series called God's Top Ten. It's an 11-week study of the Ten Commandments and how they still relate to our lives. And check this out, beginning next week, uh, all of you who have children will be pleased to hear this, our Kids Life Children's Ministry are going to be learning the same commandments every week that we're covering in here in the auditorium. So our whole family, our whole church family will be able to experience this together. Isn't that great? Amen. I think that's awesome. So parents, go home and ask your kids about the commandments that they're learning about. Mark Twain uh, told a story about a man who had memorized the Ten Commandments. This guy told Twain that his ambition was to go to the Holy Land and stand on the Mount of Olives and recite loudly the Ten Commandments. Mark Twain looked back at him and said, you know what? Have you ever thought about just staying home and obeying them? (laughs) So, you know, that that was probably actually a much better idea. Now, virtually all belief systems consider the majority uh, uh, of the Ten Commandments as being good for the human race. Three, the three main religions in the world, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, they all agree that they are literally words from God. So today, before we begin to get into the commandments individually, I feel like it's very important that I give you the backstory about why they are still relevant to us today. That's why a series on the Ten Commandments takes 11 weeks, okay? And then I also want to help you understand why they were important back in the Old Testament to begin with. And we're going to take a walk for the next several minutes, and I might speak just a little bit longer than I usually do, and I know I'm starting late, so everybody just take a deep breath. You're going to be all right, amen? Uh, It's important. We used to sit in church for hours and hours and hours, and guess what? We all turned out okay. So I think we'll be okay if we go over just a few extra minutes today. Um, So let's take a walk down history lane. If you've got your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can read the Bible on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them 
nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days your labor, you, uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, in it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder. 14, you shall not commit adultery. 15, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then finally, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, for the next 10 weeks, leading all the way up till Christmas. Woo, somebody say Christmas. Yeah, that's right. You heard me say the C word, Christmas. That's right. It's close. Can you imagine? This series is going to take you all the way to Jingle Bells. Amen. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to unpack those 17 verses, and I think it's going to be a great time. Amen. But let me give you the backstory real quick. I'm going to give you the history of the Bible in about 10 minutes, all right? Since we're starting in the middle of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, let me catch you up to speed. Exodus is actually part of something called the Pentateuch, which means a book in five parts. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were all written by Moses. It's really, though, one book in five parts. And the Ten Commandments are right in the middle, tucked away there in Exodus chapter 20. Now, the story really begins in Genesis. After sin entered the world, God picks a person named Abraham to be saved and to be used by God to bring forth the nation of Israel and ultimately Jesus Christ. He promises to bring a family and a blessing through Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And as we near the end of Genesis, we see that this man Jacob has a family and has a whole bunch of sons himself. One of these sons, the younger son named Joseph, is really his dad's favorite. And by the way, side note, bad things happen, dads, when you play favorites. Joseph is a bit of an arrogant kid. I think that's probably an understatement. He likes to talk about himself. His brothers get sick of it, so they decide to get rid of him. They sell him into slavery. They go home and they tell their dad, Jacob, that Joseph is dead. So, he's been sold into slavery, off to Egypt, Joseph goes. Now, even though Joseph is enslaved, and at various points he's in prison, Joseph is used by God, and becomes a very powerful and prominent leader. He goes from the prison to working for the king of Egypt. It is the most powerful, influential nation in the history of the world up to that time. Egypt was the world power of that day. In the days of the New Testament, the world power 
was the Roman Empire. And some would argue that today the world power is the United States of America. You get the picture. Joseph gets this opportunity to serve the Pharaoh and the nation, and God gives him great wisdom and gives him favor. They are living in the midst of a season of plenty, multitudes of years of of record-breaking harvest, food for everybody, no end in sight. Everybody's 401K is just crushing it. I mean, it's great. And no one knows that there's a disaster coming in their immediate future until God reveals it to Joseph. And he tells them, and I just give you a quick summary, there's going to be lean years of famine that are coming, and they're going to gobble up all these good years of plenty. So God gives Joseph a plan. Store up in the years of plenty in preparation for the years of lack and famine that are coming. Now, this happens, and as a result, all the other nations of the world are starving, but the nation of Egypt is flourishing because of the wise leadership of Joseph. Now, let's get back to his family and his father, who thinks he's dead. His brothers come to Egypt. They are seeking survival. Their land is in famine. They're starving to death. And now there's this amazing reunion between Joseph and his brothers, and he forgives them. Now, by the way, let me just say this. This entire story is a beautiful picture of Jesus. I don't have time to go into all the details. But this whole story about Joseph is a beautiful picture of Christ. Though we've sinned against him and we threw him into the pit, he came out to forgive and embrace and love us. Amen? I love all the stories in the Old Testament that tell us about Jesus. Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, finds out he's alive. He reconciles with his son. It's an amazing story. Joseph invites his father and his brothers to move to Egypt so that they can live under his blessing and his provision. Everything's great. Now, let's fast forward. 440 years pass between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Now there's a new Pharaoh. And this family of Jacob's that entered into Egypt of about 70 people, 440 years later, has become a nation of a few million people. The great nation of, can you say it? Israel, thank you. That wasn't a trick question, amen. The nation of Israel. Now, this new Pharaoh is a leader who does not love this nation. He hates them. He enslaves them. He abuses God's people. They're in misery, no hope, no prosperity, no future. God's people now are reaching a point that they cry out to him and they begin to beg for a deliverer and God hears those prayers, and he answers those prayers. God determines, I'm going to set my people free, and I'm going to do it through a mediator, a man named Moses, who's a prophet. And Moses is really not all that amazing at first. Think about it. Moses loses his temper. Moses murdered somebody. Moses is a man who has a speech impediment. Moses is a man who is actually kind of a bit of a coward at the beginning. And God chooses him, I think, because God specializes in doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. Amen? He sure does. And because it's for his glory, whenever God uses somebody like Moses, God gets the credit for it. Now, Moses is told by God, I want you to go to Pharaoh And I want you to tell him what to do. Now check this out. Nobody tells the Pharaoh what to do. The Pharaoh thinks he's God. No one comes into his presence and says, I demand this. But see, God commanded Moses to do exactly that. 
Go tell the Pharaoh that he is not God. There is a real God, and the real God is not too pleased with how you are treating his children. I want you to go let that Pharaoh know. Go tell the false God that the real God says, let my people go, that they may be able to worship me. And folks, that's what real freedom is anyway. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want. Freedom is the ability to do what you were made to do by God. Amen? Now, I want you to see that God is very loving, very compassionate, very patient, very kind with Pharaoh because he keeps sending Moses. And Moses keeps inviting him to submit to God, but he refuses. And then the Bible says that in addition to Pharaoh hardening his own heart, God ultimately hardens his heart. Now, that's the first 19 chapters of Exodus. And the way that God hardened his heart was through repeatedly showing him love and grace and patience and kindness and giving him chance after chance. The Puritans used to have a saying that they were fond of, and they said this, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that can melt ice hardens clay. See, some of us, when we hear from God, we melt. Oh, you're right, God, I'm wrong. I need to change Thank you for telling me the truth. I want to get on the right path. Then there's other people that hear from God and they harden. No, I will not change. I will not agree. I will not repent. I will ignore God's word. I will be my own God. I will not submit to you, God. That's hardness of heart. So God sends the plagues. The nation is suffering It culminates with the killing of the firstborn, the firstborn son. Particularly in that culture, if you didn't know that, the firstborn son was the hope of the family. He's the legacy of the family. That's the future of the family. That's the one who's going to take care of you in your old age and make sure that your name is perpetuated into the future. And God says, if you will not let my people go, I'm going to take some of your people. And the Bible says, in a night, death came. And the firstborn child, the son in every household died. Now, there was only one exception. And that was those who in faith participated in something called the Passover. God poured out his wrath, but he provided provision for his wrath to pass over his people. God's people, the children of Israel, were instructed to gather as a family, take a lamb that was without spot or blemish, which symbolized perfection. They would acknowledge their sins before God. Those sins would be imputed to the lamb. That lamb would become the substitute. The lamb would then be uh, slaughtered because the wages of sin is death. And then to show publicly that they belong to the Lord. Don't you love this picture? picture, isn't this beautiful? To show publicly that they belong to the Lord, they would take on the blood of the lamb and they would paint the exterior doorpost of their home so that when the death angel came, it would look for the blood and it would pass over that house. Now, I'm not, please, I hope I'm not boring you with Bible. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you understand the foundation of where the commandments came from. It would literally pass over those homes who had their repentance of sin demonstrated in the shed blood of the Lamb. Now, I don't want to stop and preach to you about repentance, but aren't you glad that the death angel has to pass over every one of us who have demonstrated our repentance by the application of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ to our lives? Again, it's all pointing to Jesus. 
He's the one who alone is the sacrifice for our sins. He alone is the substitute, the lamb that was slain. He alone is the one who could stop the wrath of God from coming upon you and I. And then you know the rest of the story. God delivers his people. He sets them free. They finally leave Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. Enter the Ten Commandments movie. (laughs) Now please stay with me. There's a reason why I'm giving you this history lesson. This nation of a few million former slaves are now set free, but I want you to notice something. They are not living free. They've been set free, but they're not living free. Now, don't miss that. They're committing adultery. They're still stealing from one another. They're coveting. They're lying. They're not raising their children in the fear of the Lord. They're murdering one another. They are worshiping false gods. They are the, they are the greatest whiners and complainers you've ever heard on planet earth. Though they've been set free, hear me, they have chosen not to live free. So God's got to speak to them. God is going to be loving and gracious and patient just as he was with the Pharaoh and just as he is with us. He not only wants to free them physically, but he wants to bring free them spiritually. He doesn't just want to get them out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of them. Amen. And that brings us to the Ten Commandments. Now, the reason that I took time to tell you all this history is because, hear me, if you only start in chapter 20 and you start reading the commandments, all you will see is a bunch of rules. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick of rule-based religion. Amen? Come on, somebody. Because that is exactly how many, including many Christians, see the Ten Commandments. If you just start in chapter 20, here's how you read your Bible. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, God will punish you. If you don't do that, God will bless you. That's not it. See, the commandments were given in the context of a God who had already loved, of a God who had already set free, of a God who had already adopted the Israelites into his family. Now hear me, this is not about obeying him so that he will love you. It's about him loving you and helping you obey so you can live free. Oh, you're going to get this message before I'm done. See, the context is critical. You cannot ignore the first 19 chapters and then just launch into the morality of the 20th chapter. So God speaks to his people. And hear what he has to to say in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 2. He said, then God gave the people all these instructions. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt The place of your slavery. Notice verse 2. I rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now this is his preamble. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 and 2. It's God's opening statement. It's his foundational remarks. First he tells them that he is God who loves to set free. Now remember this is God speaking. And when you open your Bible, God is speaking to you. 
Hear me, we do not believe that the Bible is just philosophy or ideology or theology about God. It is a revelation from God. Come on, the book is not about God, it's from God to us. He says, I'm the Lord your God. It's very personal. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. And folks, hear me today. The problem is always slavery, and the solution is always God. Amen? And what God is doing here is giving us laws to help them live free. Those first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the law. Now, not surprisingly, they're filled with laws. Matter of fact, somebody took the time to count them. 613 laws. Now, the Ten Commandments are the summary and the center of the law. God gives us laws to live free. Now, let me, let me compare it to this way. We don't like that word law, do we? Come on, all, all, the, all the lawbreakers, raise your hand say amen. Come on, I, I saw you drive, Amen. I, I came to church early this morning, and then I had to run back home and get something that I forgot. And on my way home, I was driving just a little bit fast, and I passed the sheriff, and guess what he did? He blinked those blue lights at me, gave me the look, and I was like, ooh, let me slow down. Any other lawbreakers in the house? <laughs> oh, wait a minute, there's kids in here. That is terrible shame on you. Shame on you, you bunch of lawbreakers. Now, check this out, though. How many of you are not particularly excited about law? What if I said today, hey, the IRS just came out with some new tax code, and every Sunday for the next 10 weeks, we're going to go through the fine print. We're going to look at all the details. How many of you would not be here? Yeah, me either. Amen. I'm going to take a 10-week sabbatical, and I'm going to say, Rodney, good luck with that. Amen. How many of you, if your boss was to say to you tomorrow, hey, I need everybody coming to the break room. Corporate just sent out a whole bunch of new policies, and we're going to go over them every day for the next 10 weeks during your lunch break. How many of you would just want to run the other way? See, hear me. When we think of law, we tend to think of law as unhelpful, inconvenient, constricting. Now, is God's law like that? See, a lot of people think it is. But hear me, commandments, laws, or rules, don't miss this, they are different when they come from a loving father than when they come from a brutal dictator. Pharaoh had laws, but they were not loving, life-giving laws for the children of God. Now, how many of you have kids? Right, this is not a trick question. How many of you have grandkids? How many of you ever babysat kids? True or false, kids sometimes rebel and do stupid things. <laughs> Somebody say God is good all the time, amen. See, they do. And sometimes, we had to have a few of these growing up when my kids were growing up. You have to have a family meeting. Anybody know what the term family meeting means, amen. See, you always know something's going wrong when dad says, hey, family meeting. Everybody on the couch, everybody at the table, it's like, oh, somebody did something. We're going to talk about it. We got some things to work on in this meeting. And see, when God gathers his children at the base of Mount Sinai and he comes down to talk to them and give them his laws, he's not saying, do these things and I will adopt you. He's not saying, if you do these things, I'm going to love you. It's him saying, I've already adopted you. I already love you, 
And I'm going to give you some things that are good for you and they're good for other people. Because I don't want to just set you free. I want you to live free. I want you to live free. I want you to live free. And here is the struggle that we have with law. Don't miss this. This is the heart of my sermon right here, this next sentence. If law is disconnected from the lawgiver, we misunderstand the heart of the law. If law is disconnected from the lawgiver, you will misunderstand the heart, the intent, the purpose of the law. That's why, fast forward in the New Testament. Many, many years later, Pharisees loved the law, but guess what? Didn't love the Lord. Because for them, they were focused more on the law than the lawgiver. Hebrew word for law is Torah. We're in the Old Testament. It was originally written in Hebrew. We have a hard time translating that word in the English, so the best word we come up with is law. Now, it's not necessarily a bad word, but it can cause some problems because, again, we think IRS code. We think speed limits. We think government bureaucracy, right? We think county policies. We think, we think school rules. We think law. But you know what? The word law, that same word, is also a word that's used in Proverbs. When the father who loves his kids is teaching them how to live wisely so that they will flourish and so that they will live and they will have an abundant life. But see, that's an entirely different perspective, right? So for parents in general, but let me just say this, for fathers in particular, we don't just drop law on our kids. You sit down with them. You look them in the eye. You kiss them on the forehead. You tell them that you love them. You, you pray over them. We were having a little discussion last night, a family discussion unrelated to this. And we started talking about things that we used to tell our girls when they were young. And Lauren spoke up and said, she said, Mom and Dad, even though I'm sure that there were times when y'all didn't agree, you guys always presented a united front. <laughs> and there were times when we'd go out and we'd say one thing and then we'd go back in the room and we're like, what are you doing? I don't like that. Or she'd be like, I don't like that rule. And you know what, but we always presented a united front because we loved them. We wanted them to succeed. Amen. So when we would lay down some rules, it was not to make them suffer. It was so that they would not suffer. Hear me. That is the father heart of God. And please don't miss this. If you separate the law from the heart of the lawgiver, you're going to end up questioning, is God really good? Does God love me? Does God care? Or is God just some faraway dictator who sends down this bunch of laws and if I obey them, I get to be a citizen and if I disobey them, I get to burn in hell forever? Now, let me, let me give you a, a tangible, a grandpa example now that I've been elevated into that amazing role. Here's a grandpa example. Mason, my grandson, loves to push his cars up and down our driveway. We have a paved driveway and it's, it's probably about as far as from here to the back wall, from our, uh, our driveway to the end of the road, uh, to, the, to where the road is. And so he'll take whatever with four wheels he has, and he is running, and he'll go running down uh, the driveway, pushing that thing as fast as he can. He is full speed ahead. But then about 20 feet from the end of the road, he starts slowing down, and about 10 feet from the road, he stops. Because he's learned that the main road is where the car cars are. <laughs> and when he's flying down the driveway, pushing anything with wheels, his little face is shiny. The wind's blowing through those little curls. 
I mean, he's, he's grinning like a possum. Every so often he's looking back over his shoulder to see how close you are. And you know what? In his little mind, he is totally in control. And as long as he's more than 20 feet from the road, guess what? Sometimes he veers off into the grass and we just watch him go off in the grass. Sometimes he veers off in the edge of the woods. Sometimes he veers off in the pine needles. And he just thinks he's totally in control. But how many of you recognize that too much freedom would lead to his suffering? All right, I'm trying to get you to understand the heart of the father, the heart of the grandfather, the heart of our heavenly father. See, we are always three steps behind him. And if he gets past the safe zone, guess what we do? Stop! I don't care if anybody hears us yelling. Stop! Stop. Oh, you better stop. <laughs> Sometimes he doesn't, he's got selective hearing. We've got to run up there and grab him by the arm, turn him and his car around, and we explain to him why it's not safe to be out in the road. Just as all good parents and grandparents know, too much freedom without some laws will harm us. See, many of you have fences in your backyards for your kids, for your pets. Your kids could look at a fence and say, look at all this oppressive fence that limits my freedom of choice and my ability to express myself. Look at the limitations that my unkind father has burdened me with. A fence. But you know what the father knows? This is an act of love. Because if you hop the fence, you're going to get hurt. If you wander off the property, you're going to get hurt. If you want to enjoy the whole yard, I want you to enjoy this whole yard. But don't you dare hop over that fence because there's going to be serious consequences. Did you know, I, I wish I would have looked it up uh, and had it in my notes because I just remembered it just now. Did you know, I remember reading about a study that they did at elementary school playgrounds, the ones that had fences and the ones that did, that did not. Did you know that the children that were on a playground that did not have a fence, they huddled, they huddled around the equipment and they were more docile than the kids who had fences built around the equipment. The kids that had fences were going wild. And they were running right up to the fence, slamming in our fence. If you don't believe that, go look at our fence. Every workday, Mike McIntyre has to fix the fence because kids are hanging off of the rails. They're climbing on the vinyl. I mean, kids appreciate fences. They may not say it, but they need them. The fence brings security. It brings safety. Hear me. When God gives us laws... If we don't see him as a loving father, if we don't see him kissing us on the forehead, if we don't see him sitting down with us on the couch telling us how much he loves us, how important that fence is for us, why we have to stop 20 feet from the end of the driveway, all you see is laws and not love. God is telling us that every law is a board in the fence to preserve our life so that we can run freely all around the yard without being harmed. Amen? See, God's laws are just planks in the fence. And when you see it, you remember that your Heavenly Father loves you. Freedom is not freedom to jump the fence, to play in the road, to hurt other people. Freedom is to play in the yard, to run down the driveway, and to know that our Heavenly Father wants us to succeed. So why did God give the Ten Commandments? Not to hurt us, but to help us. Not to restrict us, but to release us. Not to punish us, but to protect us. Every time God says don't, 
it's for your benefit. See, you ignore his commands to your own hurt. Every time he says do, it's to enrich your life and to help you become all he created you to be. And if you're a parent, you can understand this. You get this. You can comprehend this. That's exactly what God is doing with his children when he gave us the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, before we get into the Ten Commandments, how should we view these things called law? Jesus said, Luke 24, 44. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said, the law is about me. The Old Testament is about me. The New Testament is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything that is foreshadowed, is, uh, everything is either foreshadowing His coming, explaining His victory on the cross, or preparing us for Him to come again. Let me repeat that. Everything is either foreshadowing His coming, explaining His victory on the cross, or preparing us for Him to come again. The whole Bible is about Jesus. That's what Jesus said. And the law shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. And when we read the law, we realize that God is holy and perfect and good. And He has demands for us. And we fall short of them. And we fail Him. And all sin is a transgression of the law. And then Jesus comes as our Savior and He fulfills it all. He dies in my place and He causes the wrath of God to pass over me. And He blesses me and He sets me free as a child of God to live a new life, a life that is truly free. See, the people in Exodus, did they save themselves? No. Could they save themselves? No. Did they participate in their salvation? No. They were set free by their God through their deliverer Moses. But now for us, Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain to remove God's wrath from us. Jesus is the greater firstborn son who died for our sin and for none of his own. He's the greater pillar of cloud who walks with us day and night. He's the victor who defeated the most evil Pharaoh ever by the name of Satan. Amen. Jesus is our Savior. And He's the great lawgiver. That is our Jesus. Now, let me talk to you about something about the law. Remember, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. Now, I've talked to you about God's motive for His laws. Love. And I sure hope you got that point. Maybe you've heard somebody say that, well, I thought we lived in the age of grace and the age of law is now over. That's a good question. The question is, is that correct? How do we reconcile this with the continuing commandments in the New Testament that speak about virtue and morality and reflecting God's goodness in our lives? Even a lot of Bible scholars will admit to you that untangling this, this continuing place of law in the life of a Christian is difficult. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. He said, is there a conflict then... I'm waiting for it to hit the screen. Galatians 3.21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. 
Now Jesus, as well as the Apostle Paul, affirmed that the law was fulfilled in the person of Christ. But at the same time, the New Testament is also a witness to affirming the continuation of portions of the law. The issue is easily settled, though, when we understand that there is continuity and discontinuity. In other words, some things move forward and some things do not. Certain laws are fulfilled. Others continue to have a place. But all of them serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, here's the key to understanding. I don't want to get too wonkish here, but you need to catch this. Here's the key to understanding this marriage of law and grace. You need to recognize that there's three types of biblical law. There's ceremonial laws, civil laws, and there's moral laws. Certain laws that dealt with the Old Testament ceremonial life, sacrificial diet, uh, clean and unclean, holidays, wearing or not wearing certain fabrics, certain observances. These laws are called ceremonial laws. Everybody say ceremonial laws. These were fulfilled in Christ. Amen. There's other laws relating to the time of Moses when Israel had no king but God. These are called civil laws. Some people would call them theocratic laws because Israel was a theocracy with God as the head of the government. These laws were specific to the nation or to the time that they lived in. Then there's a third category of law in the Bible that is most critical for you and I today called the moral law. These laws deal with the relationship between right and wrong, holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. Ceremonial laws were fulfilled by the work of Christ at Calvary. Civil laws were fulfilled over time as the nation of Israel evolved from a theocracy to who they are today. But hear me, the moral laws are still applicable to us today. And they are fulfilled in our daily lives and they remain constant. And since the Ten Commandments are in the category of moral laws, they are still important to you and I as believers. So did, was the law fulfilled in the Old Testament? Yes, some of it was, but not all of it was. Again, look back at the preamble to the Ten Commandments from God's own words, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Notice, it was only after establishing that God was the author of their salvation that he brought the commandments. Salvation preceded the law. Now that's vital because it introduces the gospel of Jesus into our lives before we have to worry about keeping a bunch of commands. We are saved by grace and by God's mercy alone and the Ten Commandments become for us a continuing code of living built upon the grace of God in our lives. Jesus said He did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. And that's what He did. The gospel of Jesus sets forth the same conditions that God revealed to Moses on the Mount of Sinai. You are saved by God's grace, and we live out of gratitude according to God's way. Amen? God saves you, and we try to live according to His plan because we love Him, and we thank Him. We don't want to just be set free. We want to live free. Amen? And by doing so, we enjoy the blessings of God's grace. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32 says this. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Come on, guys. John 8, 31 to 32. I need him to see this. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, 
you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Real quickly, I'm going to wrap this up. The Ten Commandments reveal three things. First of all, they reveal the holiness of God. I think the most fundamental attribute of God is His holiness. Holiness stands at the very center and the very core of the being of God in ways that His other attributes do not. The word holy means separate. It means that God is separate from His creation. He's separate from everything else. He's separate from us because He's different. He's a cut above us all and He wants us to be a separate people. Can the church say amen? The commandments reveal the holiness of God. Secondly, the law also reveals the sinfulness of man. In other words, the law not only reveals God's holiness, it reveals our sinfulness. What kind of people need to be told you shall not steal? People who steal. (laughs) What kind of people need to be told don't gossip, forgive one another? People who are unfair to other people sometimes, right? See, once you get a glimpse of the holiness of God, you recognize how unholy we are. God's holiness stands in such stark contrast to our sinfulness. And you read the rest of the Old Testament and you find it's filled with people doing nothing but breaking the laws that God gave them. The total inability of man to meet God's standards. But in the New Testament, you know what happened? God begins to show us that actually the standard of God has to do with the intents of our heart. The law actually reveals to us that we can't keep the law. We need Jesus and His grace you got to cry out to God for mercy. Do you know what happens when people see God? They begin to see themselves. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? If we're honest. And once you've seen God and He exposes the things that are in our heart that are not right, we realize our need for Him. And the purpose of the law was that we might see ourselves in all of our sinfulness and cast ourselves on the mercy of God and finally see Him as He is. I want the praise team and the musicians to come. My final purpose of the law. I mentioned it reveals the holiness of God. It reveals the sinfulness of man. And number three, my last point, is it reveals our need for grace. It reveals our need for grace. Amen? You see this great big gap that exists between God and man, and then we wonder, how are we going to bridge this gap? How are we going to come to where He is? How are we going to be like him? Job asked the question. He said, how can a man be justified before God? See, that's where grace comes in. Because grace comes along and says there is a way that God can maintain his holiness and still welcome us into his family. And once you understand grace, you know that our ability, play for me, Joel, you know that our ability to approach God. It's not based on the law. It's not based on our abilities. God promises He's going to write His law on our hearts. Amen. Remember that first verse right before He gave the commandments. I'm the Lord your God. I rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. I want you to stand with me all over this house. place of your slavery. I want you to look at that word for a moment, slavery. See, we don't talk a lot about slavery because we don't really consider it part of our everyday lives, but I want you to know it still applies in our lives today. 
We call ourselves the land of the free, but in a spiritual sense, we're really still the land of the slaves. Think about it spiritually. Apostle Paul said in 2 Peter 2.19, you are a slave to whatever controls you. Anything that overcomes you, anything that overtakes you, anything that rules over you, anything that reigns above you, it's like your Pharaoh. It's your master. It enslaves you. Now, see, we don't use this language in our culture because we like therapeutic words. We like politically correct language. For example, we use words like addiction. Addiction is a secular word for the biblical concept of slavery. Can somebody say amen? So the person who says, I'm addicted to alcohol, is actually a slave to the bottle. The person that says, I'm addicted to drugs, you're a slave to the substance. Come on, I'm I'm, I'm trying to paint a real picture here, amen? I'm addicted to gambling. You are enslaved to the high that you get from the potential windfall of your greed. I'm addicted to my own reputation. No, you're enslaved and you're worshiping the God that you see in the mirror every morning. Well, I got to maintain my beauty or my spouse has to maintain their beauty. No, no, we are addicted to body language. No, a body image. You're enslaved to your appearance and your ego. Come on, we got to call it like it is. And Jesus said, I didn't just come to set you free. I want you to live free. I want you to live free. So I got to ask this question here as we wrap up this first message. Have you been set free or are you living free? Have you been set free? Well, obviously the answer is no. We want you to be set free first. But if you've been set free, I've got to ask you, are you living free? I just saw, this is not in my notes, so I might get it wrong. I just saw Carter Cobb sent me a link to a story. The fastest growing church in Iran, you might have seen it, is a church that's an underground church. It's the fastest growing, I think it's the largest church in the world. Is that correct? Fastest growing church in Iran, Christian church, and it's uh, the majority of them are women. And here's what it is. They said that, they said that the greatest thing that ever happened to Christianity in Iran was the Ayatollah Khomeini. And they said it was because he imposed uh, Islamic law on the nation of Iran. And for the last 40 years, millions of Muslims have found out that Islam is not the answer. And they said people are turning away. People are turning away from Islam by the hundreds of thousands. I think we ought to give God the glory for that. They have no buildings. They have, no, I mean, they have no structure. It's just these all these believers. But here's the part that, that ties into what I'm talking about today. And this really stood out to me. They said, we're not trying to just create converts, but we're trying to create disciples. And they said, because this is what we found out. This is what we found out. This, this is what the people said. And just the short, uh, the short little segment that I watched, I, I can't wait to go home and watch it. They said, what we found out is that if you're just a convert, they already know that if you get discovered and you're a woman, you're going to be raped, you're going to be tortured, and you're going to be killed, and your family's going to be killed. 
And they said, we found out that the converts run. But the disciples pay the price. And so check this out. Here's what they're doing. They totally flipped the script. They are trying to train people to be disciples of Jesus before they even get them converted. They're getting the Word in them. They're teaching them about the, the, the commands of the Scripture. They're teaching them about Jesus. They said, we're trying to get them to be disciples before we get them converted. And we're trying to make sure that once they get converted, they stay a disciple. Because a convert will run, but a disciple will stay. So, so why am I saying that? Are you a convert or are you a disciple? Have you been set free or are you living free? See, these commands, these moral laws of God, and we're going to break, break them down over the next 10 weeks. I'm going to talk to you every week about how they apply to our life. They're to help us live free. Live free. To help us live free. See, He wants to be your Lord. And He wants you to live free. He, he, he has a Father heart. Our loving Heavenly Father, His commands and His laws, they're here to help us and not constrict us. So I'm going to open this altar right now. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. He wants to be your Lord, and if He's already your Lord, He wants you to live free. I'm going to open this altar. I want you to come. I'm opening this altar. Step out from where you are. Come on. If you need to be set free, or if you are have been set free, but you need to live free. Come on. Nobody's going to be, nobody, don't be embarrassed. Amen. There's a lot of believers. There's a lot of converts that are struggling. We need to be set free. And we need to live free. Amen. Come on. Let's all come. Come on, family. Come on, family. Some of you right now, you just need to change your view of God. He's not the oppressive Pharaoh. He's not the cosmic deity laying down the rules. He's a loving, heavenly Father. And He wants you to live free. He wants you to live free. He wants you to live free. Would you come? Would you come? And let's worship with our praise team. As you lift your hands and you invite Him in. God, help me today to live free. I'll break.